We are in Exodus 15. We're also going to be in chapter 16, and we're also going to be in the beginning part of chapter 17. So the latter part of 15 and the early part of 17 and everything in between. Uh, In our series, The God Who Is, we're looking at the God who meets our needs this morning from the book of Exodus. These are three related stories, um, and each of them together on their own, but also together, prove as the title says, that God meets the needs of His people. Last week, we ended part one, or the first part of three parts, to the book of Exodus, and we looked at that triumphant song of Moses, that song of salvation. This song marked the end of their time, that is the Israelites' time in Egypt, as they celebrated how God saved them from slavery in Egypt, and how God not only delivered them through many signs and mighty signs and wonders, but how He also, in the end, ultimately destroyed their enemies and brought them safely across the Red Sea. When I think about that first part of the story of Exodus from 1 to 15, it started in an incredible tragedy in chapter 1, but it ended in triumphant praise for God's salvation in chapter 15. But as we begin now the new episode, the second part of the book, the question that should first come to our minds, as it certainly came into their mind as they crossed the Red Sea and after they sang this song, is the question, now what? Now what? In fact, it's the question I think all new Christians ask themselves shortly after they become followers of Jesus is the question, now what? What is my life going to look like now? What is God going to do? How are things going to be different? The Israelites had learned a great deal about God and what He desired of His people in the earlier section, but there was so much that they still needed to learn. And unlike us, they didn't have the book yet. We have the book We have God's Word that we can look to and read and glean insight from these stories, but they didn't have the book yet. They were experiencing it firsthand. And what we're going to see is that the first thing that happens after God saves them, after they ask this question to themselves, now what, before He brings them to Sinai and before He gives them the law, which is where we're eventually going, He shows them first and foremost that I am the God and I will meet all of your needs. So like I said, we're going to look at these three stories, each one emphasizing a unique aspect of how God meets the needs of His people. And before I read, why don't I uh, pray for us together? God, we come before you today once again, and we want to fix our attention and our hearts and minds on this idea that you are a God who meets our needs. And and every day we know that we are needy people. None of us are self-sufficient ultimately. Uh, None of us are totally independent. Uh, But God, we desperately need you. And there are times when you put us in situations and circumstances where you remind us of that fact that without you, we can do nothing. And even in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus, you gave this example that we are to pray for our daily bread, that you provide for us every single day the basic necessities 
of life. Even the breath that we breathe in our lungs every moment without even thinking about it, you provide that for us. Everything comes from you. And yet, God, we so often forget. And in light of the holiday coming up, Lord, we aren't grateful oftentimes because, and we're grumbling because we forget the fact that everything that we have comes from you, and you are so willing to give us uh, graciously all things, and you already have. And so, God, I pray that you would recalibrate our hearts this morning to see that you have truly provided abundantly for us, and that you will continue to do so, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, there are three parts to this, three stories. Uh, they're related in their structure, though some have a different emphasis. So we're going to look at the first story in the end of chapter 15, 22 to 27. And if you're taking notes, the title of this section is The God Who Heals the Bitter Heart. The God Who Heals the Bitter Heart. Let's just read it together. Then Moses <coughs> made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. The, the name Marah actually means bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log or a tree. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. We'll stop right there. My family likes to camp. I know many of you and your families, you love to go camping, and you know especially, never mind, you know that uh, the trip is, half of it at least, is spent gathering all of the supplies, all of the food, all of the snacks, and of course, the drinking water for your trip. Well, the journey out of Egypt was more than just a camping trip for a small family into, your, into the wilderness. We're told earlier on that there were 600,000 men, and that did not include the women and the children who left Egypt. Some estimate that there was likely two to five million people who left Egypt. And the question they were obviously beginning to ask themselves was this, now what are we going to do? <laughs> we escaped that, but it's almost like we jumped out of the frying pan and into the fire. God saved us from Egypt. He destroyed our enemies. We've crossed the Red Sea, but what are we going to do now? We don't even have the basic necessities. How are we going to survive? How are we going to provide for ourselves out here? And it wasn't long before this basic human need presented itself. They needed water. And thankfully, they came across a body of water. But when they went to drink it, they discovered that the water was polluted. They referred to it as it was bitter. And so what do they do? Well, they do what all humans do. They griped about it. They complained. They grumbled is the word. 
And they did it against Moses, the one who helped them, the one who led them to this place. They blamed him for it. One minute, they're singing the song of Moses, and then the next minute, they are griping to him about their situation. And we, the readers of the story, are kind of left to wonder, what in the world is their problem? And to be honest, the question is a little short-sighted, because like I said a moment ago, we know how the story ends. We have the book. We understand these things in God's character, but they were living all of this in real time. We can read these Bible stories and and hear of how God provided for His people in the past, and then from those stories, it gives us faith to believe that if God did that for them then, He can do the same thing for us now. But again, they had not experienced this activity of God's nature and the commitment that He had to His people. They sang about the God who was a man of war in the last chapter, but they did not yet know Him as a man of peace the one who would lead them like a good shepherd to the still waters and to the green pastures. They hadn't experienced that about God yet. And so, because of that, they lacked faith because they lacked, in some degree, revelation, this aspect of God. And so, because they lacked faith, they complained. They didn't know the God who meets their needs. And so, God used this moment to teach them a very important lesson about himself and what it meant to follow him. The first thing we see there is that he wanted to obviously teach them that he was their healer. He states it explicitly in verse 6, I am the Lord, your healer. But notice he doesn't just say it, right? It's nice to hear it explicitly, but before he says it, he proves it by healing this water. And he does it in a pretty remarkable way. After they grumble to Moses, Moses responds how the people should have responded. And he goes to God with his need. He intercedes on their behalf. And then God tells Moses, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take this log. In some translations, it's a tree. And I want you to throw it into the water. And when he did, the water was healed of its toxins, even to the point of becoming sweet. I don't know, in my mind, for some reason, I think it's like Gatorade or something, just like filled with electrolytes and just like everything that they need for the journey, right? But the point was obvious. God can heal bitterness and those things that have gone bad. And obviously, along with the practical application, they needed the water, and so God provided the water to them. But there was a spiritual implication behind this sign, behind this work that God did. Because though God saved them from Egypt, there is no doubt that there was trauma from their experience, and that trauma likely was leaving them bitter and maybe even resentful. And that bitterness, if not dealt with in this new land, in this new area, yeah, they left this place, but they would have been polluted in this new place. And so God wanted to tell them, hey, you need water, but you also need healing. And so the first and most important thing he wanted to teach them as they left Egypt was that he was the source of their healing. If they were to be healed, then they needed to go to him. And the good news is that By this sign, good news was communicated. The good news was that it is possible 
to be healed. Some people wonder, I want healing, I, I need healing, but is it even possible? And God here in this sign proves it is possible, and He wants to do that. But there's this, another reason or purpose for the miracle, which is that God not only saves His people and He heals them, but He also tests His people. In verse 2, we read, He did this not just to prove that He's a healer, but to test them, to see if they would listen and obey His Word and follow Him completely. And and with this test came a promise that if they did follow him, if they did obey his word, then he would not allow all the diseases that fell on Egypt to fall on them. But there, So this is an object lesson of who God is and what he's doing, but the story ends with God eventually leading them to camp by an oasis of sorts. But kind of here's the point of this part of the story. When God saves people, the journey is not over. The journey has just begun. God has so much more to show you about who He is. Uh, he wants to prove to you that He can and He does heal and, and that you can be healed. And He can heal the bitterness in your heart that was caused by sin, that was either done to you or by you. He can heal groups of people. He can heal a family, a church. Uh, all His people need to do in response to what God can do is recognize that He can do that, therefore stop grumbling, stop complaining, and be diligent to keep His Word. Now, I say those things, they sound really easy, but they're easier said than done, right? All we need to do is just look to God, stop complaining, and be diligent to keep His Word. But there's one last thing I want us to see in this story, because we're going to see it in the other two stories as well. It's what theologians refer to as typology. Typology is a fancy word. I'm sorry to use that, but it's important here. Um, a, a typology is when something or someone in the Old Testament or, or in the Bible foreshadows something or fulfills something else. And in this story, there's a typology found in this log that's thrown into the water. It's not coincidence that God would tell Moses to use a log and and throw it into the water because from Genesis to Revelation, all throughout Scripture, the image of the tree is seen as a source of life and healing. In Genesis 1, we see that God planted a tree of life in the garden, and all the way over into Revelation 22, we read this description about the new heavens and the new earth. It's going to go on the screen, but it says, the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. In Psalm 1, you, most of you know it well, we are told that the one who delights in the law of the Lord, he will be like a tree planted by streams of living water. So there's this typology, this image that's carried out through all of Scripture. Of course, this healing is ultimately found in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who not only was nailed to a tree, from which his wounds, Isaiah says, we are healed, but in his ministry, he came preaching the good news and healing people of their diseases. So again, this is connecting us, creating a category for the fact that a healing ultimately is coming, and it's coming in Jesus. Nevertheless, the general point here is that God 
is a healer, and God is the healer of His people. And, and as a healer, He meets one of our greatest needs, which is to be healed from the effects of sin, again, either done by us or to us, and its toxic effects in our lives. As we are newly converted people, as we're coming out of our addiction to sin and all of these things, one of the first things that we need is for God to heal us. And that happens as we are tethered to His Word, as we allow His Word like food, like water, to enter into our system and nourish us. It begins to heal us and make us whole again. This was the lesson they were to learn, and this was, I think, the lesson or is the lesson we are to learn as we continue to follow Him. But there is more to the story. God is not only the God who heals and therefore who meets our, our need, but He is also the God who feeds the hungry soul. This is moving us now into chapter 16. We'll pick up the story and read just the first three verses of chapter 16. There's a lot here, so I'm going to jump around some verses for the sake of time, but let's just read the first three. Again, they set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron this time <laughs> in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full? For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly, with hunger. We'll just pause there. Once again, just like in the last story, we see that they set out. Previously, they set out from the Red Sea. They went to Shur. Here, they set out from that place and went to Sin, which was in the middle between where they were and where they're going. And again, we're confronted with the reality of their short-sightedness, their fickleness, their short-term memory, because just like in the last story, they grumbled against Moses when things seemed desperate. Only this time they included Aaron because misery loves company, I guess. And as they did this, essentially what they were doing was they failed the exact same test that they were just given in the prior story. It's like we have a math test and you're given a test, you fail it, you go, you take it again, and you fail it maybe even worse than the last time. That's what's happening here. But their complaint is actually revealed in this story. And their unbelief actually had worsened from the prior story because now they've become delusional. I mean, look at what they're doing. They're recreating history to seem more favorable than it actually was, believing that while they were in Egypt, their food supply was like overflowing, right? I mean, they're just like, can, uh, we remember all this food that we had. We were living in the lap of luxury in Egypt, which, of course, was an exaggeration at best or a lie at worst. But this is what the people do, or this is what people do in moments of unbelief and fear. They complain. Uh, they recreate history. They gripe to people who can't actually help them, right? You gripe to your friends about your situation. You gripe to your coworkers, uh, 
or worse, you post it on social media with, with really people who can't fix your issue. You're just, people just gripe online. And all it does is create a toxic culture in whatever space or environment that is. These people, they blame Moses as if this was all his fault and as if he could fix it. This is the same similar situation and reaction as the last time. The, the issue, though, has shifted. In the last episode, the water was polluted and bitter. Here, the issue was they didn't have any food, which was a genuine concern, obviously. How are they logistically going to feed several million people? And they thought, God led us here, but did He lead us here just to die? And maybe spiritualizing that question would be, you know, God saved me, but did He save me to then just basically fall away? What does this look like? This, I think, is a real question, and they were going to get a real answer, and an answer that they didn't expect, even though they failed the test. This is the important thing. Even though they failed the test and they complained, God still was going to show that He was a God who meets the needs of His people. Verse 4, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Why don't we jump down to verse 13. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp, and when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat." And I'll just explain real briefly here, verses 16 to 30, what essentially happens is that from here, God gives Moses direction that he is to then give to the people on what they are to do with this heavenly food, how they are to gather it every single day. And they were to gather it each day in the morning, and they were not to keep any of it left over except on the sixth day so that they could rest on the Sabbath day, which is something that's going to come up later on in the book of Exodus. But what is amazing is that no matter how much they gathered, a little or a lot, the amount was sufficient. It was exactly what they needed for the day. And what was also amazing but sad is that some still tried to take more than what they needed and hold some over, and they disobeyed what God had said. And in one sense, it proved they were greedy. In another sense, it proved that they really, again, didn't trust God that he would provide the next day because they gathered some for as many days as they needed. And, but what happened is it grew rotten by the morning. 
Uh, But that didn't happen on the Sabbath day. On that seventh day, when they gathered on the sixth, the next day, it stayed fresh. And furthermore, we read this in verse 31. We'll pick up again. Now, the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I feed you or fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Jump down to verse 35. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now, there's a lot of things we could glean from this section. It's a significant passage in the book of Exodus and even throughout all of Scripture, but there's a few things to be highlighted about this miracle. First, God provides, but God provided supernaturally. The psalmist actually says in Psalm 78, I love this, man ate the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. This story is about how God provided supernaturally for His people that day and every day for 40 years. You'd think after 40 years, they would get the message, God can provide for you. There was never a doubt as to where or how they were being provided this food. It was absolutely coming from God. Only he was going to get the credit. Second, God provided daily. He didn't allow them to store massive amounts of food, making them less dependent on him as time went by. And he wanted them to learn the daily discipline of faith in the little things. This is why Jesus prayed in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. We're not praying for five years from now. I don't know what's going to happen five years from now. Just today. Just the concern of today. So he provided daily. Third, God provided just enough. No one had any lack, but everyone had everything that they needed for the day. Fourth, God provided, this is coming off the food for a moment, God provided a day of rest. In total contrast to their time in Egypt, when they were forced to work every single day, all day long, endlessly, tirelessly, God wanted His people to rest and enjoy the life that He gave them. And He did this by providing for them, even commanding to them a day of rest. He gave them the food that they needed in order to take that day of rest so that they didn't need to work. Maybe some of them thought, I need to work because I don't know what's going to happen. And they were anxious about the next day. And so they just worked. In general, they had a strong, hard work ethic, but it was because they were fearful. And God said, no, you're going to trust me and you're going to rest in me that day. And by not working that day, they were demonstrating trust that God could do more for them in six days than they could do for themselves in seven. Lastly, God provided manna as a memorial. Though it would normally rot when kept overnight, God allowed them to keep some in a jar so that it could be shown to future generations as to how God provided for His people at this time. But again, just like in the last story, there's a practical application. God provided food for these people, like literal food, but that it has a spiritual implication, again, in the form of that typology. In fact, Jesus gives us the best interpretation 
of what the spiritual implications of this event was when he said the following in John 6, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In other words, what Jesus is saying is the manna, that was amazing. 40 years of God providing literal food to his people, an amazing, wonderful miracle. And these people in this in John are thinking, man, if we could just have that again, we'll never be hungry again. That would be amazing. And Jesus is saying, as great as that is, something greater has just shown up. And uh, his name is Jesus. And I am the bread of life. That bread, you'll be hungry again. But with me, you will never, ever hunger again. This, that bread ended after 40 years. But Christ keeps giving us everything that we need. And as Moses would say later on, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Again, this part of the story reveals God meets our needs the needs of his people as he feeds the hungry soul, which brings us to our last story and a section I'm calling The God Who Satisfies the Thirsty Soul. We'll just read 17, <coughs> 1 to 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? As you can see, all these stories have very similar thematic connections. They all share this pattern as God's people moved from one place to the next. They encountered a new trial, one that tested them to see uh, if they would obey and trust God's word, and if he would provide for them. And in each situation, they proved that they were lacking seriously in faith, and yet God was not lacking in faithfulness to them. And, and though the middle of the story is about bread, notice these two stories are on the outside are about water. The first was healed and made sweet, while the second is brought from nothing. 
So here in chapter 17, their treatment of Moses now worsens as they fought now. They argued with Moses because there wasn't any water. And just like he did before, Moses cries out to God. God told him what to do. He told him to take the staff of God and strike the rock at Horeb. And when he did, miraculously, water came gushing out of it. God supernaturally, once again, provided for his people, giving them exactly what they needed. And and that same staff that parted the Red Sea, that same staff that turned the Nile into blood, what the Israelites should have known is there is, God has power over water. And just like he did that then, he can do this now. And now, through that same staff, he brought life-giving water to them. And, And once again, there's a typological connection here. Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Paul is seeing this connection between this rock that provides life-giving water to them and saying that rock that had that they had in Exodus, that points us forward to Jesus. Jesus said to a woman drawing water from a well in John 4, everyone who drinks of this water, this water in this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And of course, Jesus is taking the literal and making it a spiritual metaphor for what he is able to provide in himself, this life-giving nourishment and refreshment through faith in him. And I think as we end here, it's one thing to read these stories of how God meets people's needs or how he met people's needs. We can appreciate these stories for what they are. They're well-written. It's amazing to hear how God provided for those people back then. And maybe even to some degree, we can read these stories and even make an intellectual claim in our minds that we understand, yeah, I, I, I get it. I believe it. God meets the needs of his people. But the amazing thing about God is that the same God who worked in their life back then, the same God who provided everything that we need in Jesus is the same God who still provides for us now. I know I can hang out with any one of you if you've been walking with Jesus for any amount of time and just ask you, how has God provided for you? And you can tell me story after story after story after story of ways that God supernaturally provided for you in ways that no other, there's no other explanation for how it happened. And and these are the lessons that we learn by faith, right? That God provides everything that we need. And because we know that, we we can be grateful. We can be thankful and we don't have to grumble. He met their needs as they left Egypt. He met our greatest need when he sent Jesus into the world in order that he might heal us, in order that he might sanctify us in his son. And he continues to meet our needs. He meets our physical needs. He meets our relational needs, our spiritual needs. He meets our needs by revealing to us the truth 
that is found in His Word and showing us, as the psalmist says, that His Word is sweeter than life. And I pray that we would continue to find that to be true. Why don't we pray, and then we'll have a time of communion together. God, we come before You uh, this morning, and we have seen the revelation of who You are, that You are a God who provides that you are a God who meets our needs, that you are a God who is faithful, uh, that when everything seems like out of control and hopeless, you are never out of control, and, and you can make miracles happen, and it seems so simple for you, and yet it's so difficult for us. We see who you are, and yet we are so saddened by the revelation of, of actually who we are in this story. We often grumble. We often are short-sighted. We often don't walk in faith, and we look at our circumstances, and we don't look to you in order to meet our greatest needs or even our subtle, small needs. God, help us to remember as the Israelites were to commemorate this thing that happened with the bread. Help us to remember all of the ways that you have provided for us in order that we might have a heart of gratitude. And certainly this week, as we carry that into the Thanksgiving holiday, we should certainly think about that, how all of the ways that you have provided for us in order to cultivate that spirit of thankfulness and gratitude that will overflow onto others. But God, if anyone has needs today, we pray that you would meet those needs, whether it's a, a relational need or a physical need or a, a spiritual need. God, we pray that you would heal them, that you would provide all that they need uh, in order to see that you are faithful and also to experience the transformation that we all want in our lives. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.